Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah 11, verses 10 through 12. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Hey again, New Hope. It is great to be with all of you on this last day of Advent. Uh, Christmas is just one week away. Can you believe it? It really is just one week away. I don't know if any of you are going away, if you're, if you're, if you're traveling for the holidays. I personally, um, am, our family staying home right here in New York for the holidays. I prefer to stay home for the holidays, frankly. And, and I'm finding that as I get older and older, I just prefer to stay home, period. I, I, I find that when I go out, I can't wait to get back home. And um, I don't know if that's going to change. I think it's only that, that desire to be home is only going to intensify as I get older and older. I find that few things feel better than coming home. Whether it's after a long day or maybe it's even after an exciting trip full of new experiences, it's still so comforting to walk back into your own place, isn't it? Why is that? Why does it feel so good to come home? Maybe, maybe it's because home means rest and safety. Maybe it's because home means uh, uh, warmth, uh, familiar food, familiar smells. It's a place where you can let your guard down. And hopefully it's a place where you know you're loved. I'm convinced that, that if you have a home like that, then there's nothing better than being there. And if you don't have a home like that, then, then deep down, you long for one. You may not realize it, but you long for a home like that because we were all made to have a home and to experience the warmth and safety and love that comes with a real home. In fact, the story of humanity begins with a home. It's a it's home in the form of a garden. A garden where there was safety, and there was plenty of food, and there was God himself. But, but while the story of humanity starts with a garden, it very quickly turned into a different kind of story. It turned into not a story of home, but a story of loss, of departure, a story of homelessness. Perhaps Adam and Eve, our first parents, took for granted the comforts of their home in the garden. I'm not sure if they took it for granted or not, but I know they, they, they sinned against God. And as a result, they had to leave that home. They found themselves homeless and wandering. And within a generation, one of their sons killed his brother, and he was sent even farther from home. That's not just a Bible story. That's our story. The story of humanity has been a story of wandering and longing for home. And that's why deep inside of us there is this restless yearning 
for the warmth, the comfort of a place, a place where we are welcomed, a place where we are fed and cared for and we're safe, where we can stop all the pretending, a place where we can stop all the competing, all the working, and find real rest. Last week, as a church, we began reading Isaiah chapter 11. It's the prophecy about a king who God promised to, would come to, to rescue his people, to restore peace, and to renew all of creation. And we saw that that promised king is Jesus himself. And what I hope we'll see today as we look at the second half of that chapter, 11 of Isaiah, what I hope we'll see is that through this king, God plans to gather all his people home. God plans to gather all his people home. He intends to satisfy our deepest longing for the safety and the goodness of being where we belong with our creator God. And and I hope we'll see what that means for us, but what it also means for the whole world. Isaiah 11, verse 10, is where we're jumping in. And it says there that in that day, the root of Jesse, we saw last week that that's, that's Jesus. Jesus, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. When you see resting place, you might think cemetery. Um, Your resting place is where you are buried. That's not what Isaiah is talking about. When the Bible speaks of a resting place, it's talking about the place where you live. This is talking about the king's resting place, Jesus's resting place, God's resting place, where God lives. Because after all, where you live is where you rest, isn't it? At least it's supposed to be where you rest. Now, in this kind of post-COVID world, some of us, our homes are a workplace. They're an office, a workplace, and hopefully a place of rest. But try to think of home as a place where you don't go to get work done, but a place that you go after your work is done. Think of home as a place where you go to kick back, to sleep, to eat, to enjoy fellowship with the people in your household, to rest. God is going to gather his people through this king back to his resting place, which will become their resting place. In verse 11, it says, In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. You see what God is saying. He's going he's to gather his people to bring them home from all of these places. And by the way, the people that he's talking about here, these are people who have disobeyed him. If you read Isaiah 10, you'll find that these are the same people who in the past he has had to discipline. He is punished. He has judged. But he's saying that when all the judgment and discipline is done, I'm going to gather my people to myself. These are people who failed to honor him. These are people who failed to trust him and believe in him. He's saying, I'm going to welcome you back. In spite of all you've done, I'm going to bring you back home. This is mercy. 
that we're reading about here. This is grace. And what Isaiah is describing here is a kind of second exodus. Those of you who are familiar with some of the Bible story maybe know about the first exodus. You can read about it in the book of Exodus. But in Isaiah eleven fifteen, God says this, or the prophet says this, and the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the Sea of Egypt. That's a reference to the Red Sea. He says, I will wa- he will wave his hand one, uh, over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And look, he will lead people across in sandals. Where, where, do we, where else do we see that image of God leading his people across the sea in sandals? Verse 16 says, and there will be a highway from Assyria from the, for the remnant that remains of his people. And as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. This is figurative language that the prophet's using here, as usual, as he does throughout. But he's alluding to a historical event. He's alluding to what God did very literally centuries earlier when he led his chosen people out of captivity in Egypt to a new home. At one point, you may remember, his people who is rescuing from captivity, they're escaping from Egypt. They find themselves on the shore of the Red Sea. They're trapped. They can go no further. And, and the Egyptian army is advancing fast, closing in on them. So while God intervenes miraculously, Exodus 14 says that God sent a miraculous wind The word wind in the Hebrew there is the same word for spirit. He sends his Holy Spirit, it implies. But with with he 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 intervenes to part the sea, open it up so those people could walk through safe in their sandals. Barely got muddy. Well, Isaiah 11, God is saying, I'm gonna do this again. If you know the first the only difference is that the second exodus, the second homecoming is gonna be bigger and better. I'm going to gather my people again to bring them home, but this homecoming is going to be bigger and better. If you thought the first exodus was a big deal, you're going to be amazed by the second exodus, he says. In order for us to understand the significance of all this for us and for the whole world, I think we need to answer at least two questions. These are two questions we're going to try to answer, and they're very simple ones, and I think the answers are quite plain. Uh, Who are God's people, and how does he call them home? Who are God's people? How does he call them home? So who are these people? Who are God's people? In other words, who is it that God is, is promising to gather and welcome home? Again, verse 11 says that God will recover the remnant that remains of, quote, his people. From all of these different places, right? Assyria, Egypt, etc. The, the identity of those people becomes, it gets a little clearer when you read verse 12. Because in verse 12, he says he'll assemble the, quote, banished of Israel, and he will gather, quote, the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the world. So it's the banished of Israel and the dispersed of Judah. That's who God is gathering. That's who God calls his people. When, when Isaiah wrote these words, the kingdom of Israel was split in two because of internal conflict. Uh, the tribes to the north, you can look at this map, there are tribes to the north that were still called Israel, 11 tribes up there, and then one tribe to the south, Judah, had become its own kingdom. God's saying, those are my people. 
I'm going to gather them. But some of those Israelites and some of those people from Judah have been scattered throughout these other regions in the area. I'm going to go through those regions and bring them all back home. God promises to gather his people from both of these kingdoms from wherever they've been scattered. And some of them may have been scattered because of war or because of famine, uh, through, through different reasons for diaspora. They were all over the place. He's going to bring them all back home. So if you've read any of the Old Testament or much of the Old Testament, there's no surprise in anything I've said to you. This is all old news. You're like, Rob, I know this already. I know that the people of Israel are God's people. Yes. He keeps telling us that throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, God tells his people, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You are mine because I chose you. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, it was not because, of, because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were fewer. You were the fewest of all peoples, he says. But it is because the Lord loves you. The Lord chose to love the people of Israel. And, and it says he is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God chose that nation, that people, even before they were a nation, frankly, because thousands of years earlier, God approached not a whole nation, but he approached a man, a single man, a man named Abram. And Genesis 12 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country. And your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. It's interesting. He's saying, he's saying, Abram, leave home and come home. Leave home so that you can come to the home that I'm going to bring you to. In verse 2, he says, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make, you a, make your name great so that you will be a blessing. That, by the way, is the oath that Deuteronomy 7 was talking about. This, here's the oath that God made to the people of Israel through Abraham. Abram would later be called Abraham. He says, I'm going to multiply your family. I'm going I'm I'm to multiply your people. You're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And then, and then thousands of years later, when Abram's family did, in fact, multiply into a nation, that nation had a king, and that king's name was David, and King David prayed these words in 2 Samuel 7. He says, and who is like your people, Israel? Oh God, who is like your people, Israel? The nation on earth whom you call, the one nation on earth. Notice that. God only chose one nation. The one nation on earth whom, whom God went to redeem to be his people making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. So, so God's people whom he promises to gather and call home. Who are they? They are the people of Israel. They are the descendants of Abraham. They are the Jewish people whom God chose and named for himself. He, he, that's who he promised to bless. And, and by the way, that's who Isaiah is writing to. And Isaiah, who was a Jewish prophet, and, and he's writing in Hebrew, the language of the Jewish people, to the Jewish people, the chosen people of God. 
And yet, and here's how, where things take a turn, and yet when we come to the New Testament, we find that that category of God's people, Israel, has actually expanded exponentially. It's not just the members of those 12 tribes. In Romans 15, the Apostle Paul, who's a Jewish Pharisee, a Jewish scholar of the Old Testament, this Jewish man, Paul, he quotes Isaiah 11, 10. But he quotes it from the Greek version, the Greek translation of the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. So he's quoting directly from the version of the Old Testament that Greeks would have used in that time. Greek-speaking people would have used at that time. And here's, and here how, here's what he writes in Romans 15, 12. Quoting from Isaiah eleven ten, he says, And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. So you see what he's done. If you hold up Isaiah eleven ten, which you read earlier, against how Paul is translating it here, how Paul is quoting it here, we see that he switched out some words where it used to say nations and peoples, he's put in Gentiles. That's an accurate translation. Those nations, those peoples are Gentiles, that is, non-Jews. So, according to Paul, the people of God doesn't end with the people of Israel, with the biological descendants of Abraham, that ethnic people group. According to Paul, when God gathers his people home from across the world to experience the righteous rule of King Jesus, he is gathering people from every nation, all of them. Not just Jews from every nation, but people from every nation, all of them. Now, if you've been around church for a while, again, none of that surprises you. You're like, I get that. I already knew that. It doesn't have to surprise you. But no matter how familiar you are with that reality, it should astound you. It should astound us, even if it doesn't surprise us. It should shock us. Look, because it means that God has chosen to welcome home men and women and children from every ethnicity, every corner of the world, every culture. And I think that sometimes as 21st century Western believers in Christ, we take that for granted. Especially if we're not Jewish, we take that for granted. We think, of course God welcomes people from every culture and ethnicity and people group across. Of course he does. He's God. If, if he didn't receive and accept every kind of person, then what kind of God would he be? He would be a, a prejudiced God, a discriminating God. But that's naive to think that way, frankly. The Bible wants us to see that the fact that God welcomes people from every culture, every ethnicity, every corner of the world is a much bigger deal than we think it is. It's not as intuitive as we think it is. In Old Testament times, every people group had their own gods, little g gods, little g fake gods. So the Assyrian Empire, they had their gods that they worshipped. The Babylonians had their gods. So did the Egyptians. Maybe you can think of some of the Egyptian gods if you happen to study that in some, some class somewhere along the way. Some of those fake little G gods um, still, still are known, at least they're studied, if not worshipped anymore. But even in, in Isaiah's day, even in Old Testament days, 
one could worship a god from another culture. Like, you could worship an Assyrian god if you wanted to. You could worship an Egyptian god even if you weren't Egyptian. You could, but they would never be your gods, and you would never be their people. Those little G gods were exclusively for the cultures that had thought them up. (laughs) And so it's into that kind of world, that world where every people group has their own little gods. The God, the real true God, the creator of the universe breaks in and says, I will gather a people for myself from all of these nations, all of these cultures, all of these languages, all of these places. So that the dispersed people that he promises to gather there in in, in verse 11 of Isaiah 11, those people from Assyria and from Egypt and and from from Pathros and from Cush and Elam and all these other places, he's not just talking about gathering Jewish people that have been dispersed to these places. He's saying, I'm actually going to gather Assyrian people and bring them home to myself. I'm going to bring Egyptian people and they're going to be mine. I'm going to bring people from Cush who were born and raised in Cush and are culturally Cush and linguistically Cush, and I'm going to make them mine. And, and part of what makes this so amazing is that it's, 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 he's saying to his people through Isaiah, I'm going to take your enemies, the people who have oppressed you, the people that you've gone to war with, the people that you hate, I'm welcoming them home. And we're all going to live together. (laughs) And that resting place will be glorious. God is promising to welcome even the enemies of his people and welcome them home. And for anyone in Isaiah's day who understood that, that would have been outrageous. In fact, it, it may very well have enraged them. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Remember Jonah? Jonah was a, a Jewish prophet. Jonah would have preferred to die rather than offer God's mercy to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh happened to be a, in the Assyrian kingdom. So, so Jonah's saying, I'd rather die than offer forgiveness and mercy from God to the people of Assyria. Imagine if Jonah knew that God intended to bring people from Nineveh, from Assyria, and make them his brothers and sisters and welcome them into the same household and say, we're all part of the same family now. Imagine how outraged Jonah would have been then. Again, we, we take for granted, I believe, to some extent, we take for granted how crazy this is. And, and, but it wasn't lost on Jesus' Jewish disciples, when they started to realize that God's people included not just ethnic Jews, but people from every culture, it surprised them. Look at at what Paul says in Ephesians 3, 6. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are fellow heirs. They're members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He calls it a mystery. He's saying, we didn't get this. We didn't understand this. The clues were there. They were there in places like Isaiah, but we never saw them. We never made sense of it until now the mystery's been revealed. Guess what? Can you believe this? Gentile people get to be part of the family. They get to be part of the household of God, and they get to share in the inheritance that was promised to God's people. And they're not just junior members of the family. There's no hierarchy. They are full-fledged members of God's people now. 
they get to share in the full inheritance if they receive Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, as king. You see, the boundaries that God is now drawing around his family, he's saying, the boundaries of my family are not around the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. It's not, it's, they're, not, and they're not geographical boundaries. They're not ethnic boundaries or cultural boundaries. No. The boundaries are around the person of Jesus Christ. You receive Jesus as the Jewish, the Jewish Messiah. You receive him as king. And God says, you are now my people. My people. And it, it, Paul was surprised by this. And, and Peter, another Jewish disciple of Jesus, he was extremely surprised by this. It took him a long time to start to wrap his head around it. Some of us maybe have memorized John 3.16. It's one of the most uh, commonly memorized verses in the Bible. It tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that whoever ever believes in him would not perish, would not die, but have eternal life. And maybe we, we, we might take that verse for granted. It's so familiar to us. Or if we're amazed by it, we might be amazed by the idea that God would send his son to die in order to offer forgiveness and welcome to sinners. And we should be amazed by that. But what we miss there that's really amazing, what we should be shocked by, although we often are not, is the word world. The, 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 the universality of that word. The bigness of that word. I think John, the apostle, when he wrote John 3.16, he was probably shocked by the word world. For God so loved not just Israel, not just his people that he made a covenant with through Abraham, not who everyone knew he loved all these many centuries, but God so loved the world. The nations, the peoples from every corner of this planet. I think that stunned John. I think it should stun us a little bit more than it does. It's meant to shock us, I think. I think it's meant to, in some way, wreck us and, and move us, uh, especially any of us who are not Jewish. It's, 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 it's meant to, to move us to say, if the God of Israel has chosen to love me, if he's expanded the boundaries of his love and his people to include me, how in the world can I say no to that kind of love? How can I reject or ignore that kind of love? So who are the people whom God will gather and bring home? In Isaiah, we see more, we see the hints of it, but we see it even more clearly in the New Testament. It's anyone who receives Jesus, the root of Jesse, this promised Messiah, anyone who receives him as king. If you grew up in New York, uh, maybe you're used to being, uh, living in a diverse community. Maybe you grew up in a diverse community culturally. I don't know. But the household of God is more diverse than any place in New York or any place in this world. It's more diverse than, uh, than, than Qatar during the World Cup or any host country during the Olympics. If you are a non-Jewish person like me, I think we would do well to remember sometimes the, the Jewishness of our Savior and the Jewish roots of our faith. I think it would help us to counter this weird idea that somehow Christianity is a, a Western religion or perhaps even an American faith. 
there's nothing American about our Messiah King, and there's no room for that kind of weird nationalistic arrogance in the kingdom of God. Now, we would do well, I think we'd be humbled to remember Paul's words to the Gentiles in Ephesians 2. He's talking to his brothers and sisters here in Ephesians 2. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, he's talking to Gentiles, you weren't always a part of this party. You were far off. But you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. That is, Jews and Gentiles, he's made us one. And he's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That is, as a Gentile believer, I don't have to, and you don't have to, if you are a Gentile believer, uh, obey the, the, the Jewish law. You don't need to become Jewish in order to become a member of God's people. No, no. He says, instead... It's through his blood that he's brought you in so that he might reconcile us both, Jews and Gentiles, reconcile us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So who are the people of God? It's those who find their identity and they tie their lives to and give all their allegiance to who receive the Messiah King, Jesus. If you are a member of that community, then you can know this. God is going to gather you and all the rest of his people home to himself. Verse, the second question we need to ask, and we'll end here, is how does God call his people home? How does he do it? Well, here it is. Isaiah 11.10 says that Jesus, this root of Jesse, he's gonna, he shall stand as a signal for the peoples. He shall stand as a signal for the peoples. And then in verse 12, he says, God will raise a signal for the nations. Um, that word signal, uh, some translations uh, use the word a banner, right? So, so think a signal, a sign, a banner, a flag. Picture a sign that says home. Picture a sign that says this is home. The other day in my car, um, my six-year-old daughter was looking at the GPS app that I had stuck on my, on my dashboard and uh, I, I use this GPS app to go everywhere. I can, barely, I can barely leave my house without it. She's looking at it, and she says, Dad, how, how do you know where we're going? And I said, I said, you see that little red pin? We're headed for that red pin. That's how I go anywhere. I set up a red pin, and I say, I'm going to go there. Jesus here in Isaiah 11 is prophesied to us as a, he's the red pin, <laughs> You head for him, and you will head home. You believe in him, you trust in him, and you will find yourself home. You will find yourself where you belong if you focus your sights on him and you head for him, if you head for that signal. It's why when, when Jesus was on this earth teaching and healing, he consistently called people to himself. Jesus did not consistently call people, or really ever call people to an idea, uh, to philosophy, to a movement. He didn't try to get people to embrace a way of life as much as he tried to bring people to himself. And certainly coming to him will imply a certain way of life. 
But he wasn't about trying to gather people around an idea, a theory, a belief. He was gathering people around himself over and over and over and said, he's saying, come to me. He once even said this. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Where do you find rest? It's at home. He's saying, come home. He's saying, you've worked hard enough. Come home and rest. Rest from trying to get satisfaction from all these things that were never really designed to satisfy you. Rest from from trying to do better and be better. Rest from trying to do better and be better than you've done in the past. Rest from trying to do better and be better than other people. Rest from trying to find love and acceptance from other people. Jesus stands up as a sign, as a signal, and he calls people home to himself. Some of us know that um, home is more than a place, right? Even when I was saying before that there, there are certain things that make it great to come home. You know, there's certain smells and, and, that, and, 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 and certain, certain uh, uh, maybe, maybe it's just, maybe it's just you know, the food and, and maybe it's just certain things about your home that just make it so comfortable. Place matters, but people matter more than place, don't they? Um, I was thinking about this just recently about Sasha and his family, this family from the Ukraine that we have the privilege of helping relocate to the United States. They found a new home in South Carolina. Um, I tr- it's a new house. I don't know if it feels like home yet, but they have a new house. I'm sure they long for and they miss their home in Ukraine, but I would bet that if you were to ask Sasha, what would you prefer to be home in Ukraine without your family or to be here in a foreign place with your family, he'd prefer to be here in a foreign place with his family, right? Because place matters. Your house matters. There's no doubt. But people, the presence of the people you love is greater than place, isn't it? And so Jesus says, believe in me. Yes, I am preparing a place for you. We saw the place last week when we were looking at Isaiah 11 and we're seeing what the kingdom of God, when he comes and returns to make all things new, what it will look like, it will be a glorious place. He's prepared. He will bring us to a new place. But right now what he's saying is, if you just come to me in my presence, through faith in me, you'll find home. You'll find home. You'll find the peace acceptance, the love, the care that you so deeply long for. Wherever Jesus is, that is home. You know, when Jesus was about to die in John 12, he says these words. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this not to show, he said this, excuse me, to show by what kind of death he's going to die. Quite literally, what Jesus is talking about here is his crucifixion. He's saying, I'm going to be lifted up from the earth. I'm going to be nailed to a cross, and that cross is going to be hoisted up. It's going to be, I'm going to be suspended in the air for all to see me. He says, when I'm hanging there for all to see, I will be calling all people to myself. You see, the cross, when it went up there and it stood there for everyone to see, When that happened, God himself was fulfilling the promise that he had made through Isaiah. The crucifixion was a signal, the signal to the world that that the door is swung open, the light is on, and you are free to come on in and make yourself at home. 
you are welcomed in God's house. You are welcomed in his family, in that place of rest. It can be your place of rest. And that place is better than the garden that Adam and Eve sinned their way out of. This home that God offers us in Christ is better than all the places that you've called home. I get nostalgic about the places I used to live. Um, I like to go back to New Jersey sometimes and drive past the house that I grew up in. I want to show my kids, this is where I live. This is where it happened. Or, or the first apartment that my wife and I first lived in. I love to drive by there and remember all the wonderful memories. I never think about the fights that happened there or the arguments or the, the nasty things I said. I just remember the good stuff. God is saying this home that he's offering us in Jesus, that he's calling us to, is better than anything you've ever called home here. It's better than any of the places or any of the things in which you are trying to find satisfaction and peace and rest right now. Those, those things are not giving you the kind of peace you want. Not giving you the kind of lasting satisfaction. Some of us love the houses we live in, but we still like looking on Zillow to see what else is out there. Right? Always, always kind of dissatisfied. Oh, God is saying, in the home that I am calling you to, my resting place, you will find true rest. For centuries, the people of God had gathered at God's temple. They used to call the temple the house of the Lord. And they were only allowed into parts of that temple and, and at certain times of the year. And Gentiles, non-Jews, were barely welcomed at all. They really couldn't even get in. But when Jesus was lifted up and he gave his life and he hung on that cross, the door was swung open for anyone and everyone to come in. If they'll simply see the signal and believe and come. I want to I end with just these two quick takeaways, two things for us to think about as we walk away from this passage and towards this final week before Christmas. Um, the first thing is this. When I was a kid, our house sat adjacent to a park, and my friends and I would, uh, we'd, would play. I spent a lot of time playing in that park right behind our house. And sometimes when it, got, it started to get a little late, my mom would, uh, she would open the, the kitchen window on the back of our house, and she would call my name. Or she would send one of my brothers to call my name. They used to call me Bobby when I was little. And so I would hear someone say, Bobby. It was always embarrassing a little bit. I've never confessed this to my mom that I know of, but she's probably listening to this right now. But I, I, I have to confess something. Sometimes I pretended not to hear my mom call me. And sometimes she'd have to send one of my older brothers out to the park. And they were always upset about it. They had to stop what they were doing, run out to the park and grab me. And I'd say, I didn't hear. And they'd say, yeah, right. And they bring me home. Here's a question for, for, for you and for me. Do you hear Jesus calling you home? Do you hear Jesus calling you home? If you do, don't ignore his voice. Don't ignore the gospel. Don't ignore the cross. That signal. Every time we sing about the gospel, every time someone reads the word of God, every time you hear the gospel, every time you simply remember the gospel, it is Jesus calling you home, calling you to himself. And we have to ask ourselves, if we're not listening, if we're not coming back to him, if we're not coming to him for the first time, why not? What are we waiting for? What are you waiting for? You know, in order to call you home and welcome you, 
The Son of God left the comfort of his home. He willingly entered into the pain of humanity. We, we sang about this in some of the songs earlier. He laid aside so much, so much comfort to be born into the messy, borrowed home of a, of a teenage couple and to be there among strangers and animals. You remember this. His birth was announced by a star, right? There was a, a signal. There was a star, a kind of, a kind of uh, Google Maps uh, red pin in the sky, a signal to the nations that guided uh, Jewish shepherds to come find him and some Gentile wise men to come see him. Jesus took on flesh. He dwelt among us. The Son of God did. He, he made himself at home here to call us home, to bring us home. There was a, maybe, maybe you remember this. Jesus said to, to someone once that, that even the animals have a place to live, but me, the Son of Man, I don't even have a place to lay down my head. He lived the life of a homeless man. Why? Why? To call you and bring you home, to call me and bring me home. John 1 says that he came to his own people, but his own people did not receive him. Isn't that interesting? He came to the people of Israel, but many within the people of Israel rejected him. God had sent prophets like Isaiah to tell, to call the people of Israel back to himself because they kept straying, he kept sending prophets, they kept ignoring. He sent Jesus, his son, many of them still did not receive him and did not receive his welcome. But John says, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He brought you into the household. What more could he do to make you feel welcomed? What more would Jesus have to do? Think about this. If you have yet to believe in Jesus, or if you're doubting whether he loves you, or you're kind of just walking away from him, what more would Jesus have to do? to convince you that you are welcomed by him and that he loves you deeply and that he wants to satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. He died, he rose again, and he calls you home, and he wants to gather you up with all his children to rest in his love, to rest in his love now and then in eternity to live in the house of the Lord forever. If he's calling you, if he's calling you back, if you've strayed, you find yourself so distracted from, maybe it's the demands of career, or the demands of parenting, the demands of your schoolwork, or the demands of, of, of any other challenges that you're facing in life, perhaps they're distracting you from him. He remains steady, and he keeps calling you back. He wants you home. And here's the last thing, last takeaway for us. When, when Jesus rose again, he commissioned his church to lift up the signal to the nations. As his church, that's our mission. It's to, it's to lift up the sign, bear the signal. Our job, church, is not to convince people that Jesus is who he says he is. It's not to argue people into believing that he is who he says he is. Sometimes I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to do those things. Your job is not necessarily to know all the apologetic answers and be able to 
address all the doubts of every single person and be able to convince them of who Jesus is. No, no, no. The, the job description he gives us is simple. It's, it's hold up the signal. That means show and tell people that God is welcoming people home, that he's gathering people to safety, that God is so full of mercy, he's so full of love, he is calling people to himself through faith in Jesus, his son. And we get to just lift up that signal and that sign that says, come home, come home. Uh, one, one writer, John Piper, actually, he wrote this. He says, we are in the days of a great prophetic fulfillment. The signal of the shoot of Jesse, Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen king, is being lifted up among the nations, and they are streaming to the Savior of the world. You see, he paints this picture of what's happening around this world. You may not see it. You may not see it in your own family. You may not see it in your own neighborhood. But around this world, the signal is being held up, and God is presently gathering people from every culture and every language and every ethnicity and every station in life to himself. Now the question for us as a church is, is are we holding up that signal? I believe we are, but I believe it's a constant, it's a constant, uh, it's a constant call for us to reevaluate and, cons- and consistently recommit ourselves to this mission of lifting up the signal of the gospel. That's why we, it's why we pray and partner with churches like Fordham Community Church, because we want to be, we, I live in Westchester, but I want to be a part of, we want to be a part of lifting up that signal in the Fordham community of Bronx. It's why we support the Wisi family in Southeast Asia who, who, who are bringing the gospel, lifting up the signal of Christ to people who don't even have a Bible in their language. We get to be a part of holding up that signal through them and through many others. But it's not only, it's not only in other parts of this state or in other parts of the world. It's also within our own home. It's with, for those of us who are parents, it's with our own kids. We are called parents to hold up the signal with our own children. As a parent, um, our jobs involve a lot of reminding and calling people to do things, right? We remind our kids to do their homework and get off their screens or clean up after themselves. And it's obvious why we do that. We do that because our kids need lots of reminders, just like I do. I need someone to remind me of those very same things. But how often are we reminding them that Jesus loves them and is calling them home? How often are we reminding them of that sign is still out there, that the door is open, that the light is on, and Jesus wants them to come home? This Advent, I want to invite us to pay attention, to pay attention to the voice of Christ calling us home, and to remind our children, our loved ones, that he's calling them home. If you've strayed, if you feel like you've been falling away, he's calling you back. And he does so with this promise, with this promise that he will satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts if we'll simply hear him and come. Let's pray. Lord, I I don't know why you want us so much, but you clearly do want us. And you've gone to this great lengths to call us to yourself. Oh, Lord, give us ears that listen and respond. And use us. 
Use us to bring others home to you. Don't allow the distractions and the busyness of this coming week to lead us to ignore your loving voice that speaks to us through your word and calls us back to yourself. Thank you for making us your people. Thank you for giving us what we so deeply need and want. In Jesus' name.